0: beloved congregation, the subject for which the Heidelberg Catechism asks our attention this morning is not exactly a very exciting one. It's not one of our favorite Lord's Days. Whether or not Christians should swear an oath is not a matter of High priority for us, or should I say, it has not been so for many years, but the times have changed. And as we will hear this morning, it is really quite a relevant portion of the Word of God interpreted now by the Catechism concerning the oath. Right now, there are many issues coming up in society that require us to pay attention to what is being taught here. There is a historical background, first of all, to this Lord's Day, and the reformers believed that important principles were at stake. Already then, 500 years ago, But lately, there is almost a revival, or not a revival, but a reconsideration of some of the same issues that bothered the Reformers. I suppose that all of you have heard about the Anabaptists of the 16th century. They wanted to go further than the Lutherans and the Calvinists in reforming the church, but they went too far in their zeal to make the church a pure church. Not that the desire was wrong, but the way they went about it was not right. They made a sharp distinction between nature and grace and flesh and spirit. And they thought that that was what Christians should be very much involved in and one of the things that they went wrong with was that they thought that christians have nothing to do with secular life christians they said must avoid contact with the world as much as possible because the world after all is evil and they said that Christians were under grace and that they had nothing really to do with this life anymore. They knew that they were born in sin and they had a worldly spirit, but because they became Christians, that was all belonging to the past. And therefore, there was no need for them to submit to civil laws or governmental issues. They refused to serve in the army. They took no interest in politics and they certainly would not take an oath. And that's our focus this morning, of course. But our Reformed Fathers rejected those views. They believed that this life is good because God created it. Christians may not say no to life as such. They believed that it was wrong to have an attitude of complete world flight. The Anabaptists "We have nothing to do with this world. But the reformers said, we live in this world. And God's word relates to all of life, not just on Sundays in church, but also during the rest of the week. Christ's name is to be honored everywhere. Not only in church, as we come under the preaching of the word, but also during the week, wherever we are. And one way of doing this, they said, is to swear by the name of God, in court, a court of justice. The Anabaptists saw it as a mark of godliness not to swear an oath. But our reformed fathers took the opposite view. Well, who was right? We must admit that many of the Anabaptists were solid Christians. They were, not all of them were good Christians, but certainly there were many. But they were nevertheless wrong in certain issues. Let us then examine for a few moments the question as to who was right in this regard. The theme is the Christian and the oath we look at three things here. First of all, the necessity of this oath. Secondly, at the objection to this oath. And thirdly, the permission of this oath. Congregation, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that men by nature are liars. Their throat, he says, their throat is an open sepulcher with their tongues they have used deceit the poison of asps is under their lips this means among other things that man the natural man cannot be trusted sin has damaged man in all in all his relations And that is especially noticeable in the area of communication. Man has been created for communication with his fellow men. No man is an island. No one can say, I can be alone, and that's enough. No. God has given us eyes to see one another, ears to Hear a heart to love and also a mouth to speak to one another. Especially the latter is very important. We most often communicate verbally. What a gift of God it is that we can give expression to our thoughts by forming words. By by means of of words, we can exchange thoughts, share secrets, and make promises. But the sad thing is, of course, that sin has affected communications by words, too. And you know the results. Our words often don't mean anything. We make promises without keeping them so that people cannot really trust us. We are often unreliable. And because we notice these things in others but also in ourselves, we suspect that others do the same thing. They don't keep their words. We sometimes f- forget about ourselves, that we are neglectful in these areas, but we notice it with others anyway. And sometimes we we understand that some people promise us something, but it's never comes to reality, never t- fulfilled. And then we often w- wonder whether the person who makes a promise to us really means it. But mutual trust, and that is the case here, we are not any better really than other people. Mutual trust is indispensable for a healthy society. Society cannot really function if there is no trust. And that is why God in his grace has given man the oath to curb the influence of sin. In this case, the sin of lying. Without the oath, society would be even worse than it is today. Left to himself, man does not hesitate to distort the truth if it is to his advantage. And if anything is going on in society, it is there. In in this respect, many people are corrupt, lying, cheating, twisting the truth, always for their own advantage. What an accusation this implies. The fact that the oath is necessary tells us that we cannot be trusted. Now suppose that you have to come to court, you have done something wrong, or you are called to be a witness to other people who have done something wrong, but you have to come to court for a real important meaning. You have to testify. That means really that the court does not really trust you. Not that they always are sure that you are lying but you may be lying and so to be sure that they will get the truth out of you as a witness you will have to swear. It is the judge on the bench who says sir We want to hear what you will tell us and we have no personal suspicion of what you will say or that you will be wrong but it may be so that you are not telling the truth so we have to make sure that you will do so. They would not think of of thinking that the person must be a liar, but he may well be. And so the, the person before the court has to accept that fact that there may be suspicion as to what he's going to tell you. Sin, you see, has corrupted humanity. The devil, the father of lies, has taught us the art of lying and cheating using double talk and ambiguous language. And therefore, it has become necessary to appeal to God's omniscience in order to give value and credibility to our words. Now, it was at this point that the Anabaptists interrupted the Reformed and they said, Granted that that is true of unbelievers, they are liars. But this cannot be said of us who are believers in Christ. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus, and we spend our lives in the presence of God, a God who loves the truth and hates the lie. And therefore it is necessary for us to abstain from swearing an oath in court, but we realize that unbelievers, they can do that. Maybe they should. But for us it is strictly forbidden. For Christ says in Matthew 5, Swear not at all. Let your yea be yea and your nay nay. And so here, our reformed fathers had to deal with these people who objected to oath taking. Let me say this first of all this objection cannot be taken lightly. And our forefathers did not do that either. Because it has something, some validity, because it is an objection based on scripture. Certainly, on what Jesus says here in Matthew 5. Let your communication, the way of communicating with each other, let it be yea or yes or no. And this objection, therefore, had to be examined carefully. And the main appeal of these Anabaptist people was to stay with this verse from Scripture and and also added to this James chapter 5, verse 12, who says the same thing, what Jesus said. The apostle refers to these same words of the the Savior, swear not at all. But what does Jesus really mean there? To understand this, we must keep in mind Christ's people, or rather, Christ's purpose in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. His purpose is to expose the sham and the falsehood of the Pharisaic perversions of the Mosaic Law and to contrast these with his own teaching. Notice, therefore, what... The Lord says here. He says, you have heard that it has been said by them of old that thou shalt not forswear or falsely swear, but shall perform unto the Lord thine oaths." Now we often read this and we don't think too much about what really is meant by Jesus here. Well, let me just tell you that the exact Words are not found anywhere else in the Bible. Namely, that Jesus says, um, you let, your, let your yes be yes and nay, no. But when Christ said that, You have heard that it has been said by them of old. Who are these people? Well, they were the Pharisees and other learned scholars in the Old Testament who studied the law, and they have said something different from what Moses had taught them. The law of Moses said, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, that was the original and fundamental law regarding oaths with which we may also uh, can link Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, which says, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, and serve him, and shalt swear by his name. That was the standard given in the law of God through Moses. But at some point after that, the people, the scholars, of the bible they they came up with a different version why did god give this commandment to israel well to put a bridle on their tendency to speak lies but also the law of god has to be taken seriously all through the Ten Commandments, and other laws that were given by the Lord. On the slightest pretext, the Jews, the Old Testament Jews, they they would take an oath in God's name. They knew what Moses had said, but they disregarded that. They swore up and down, and for whatever reason they thought, was important, but they used God's name in their oath taking. And that still happens today, congregation. You must have noticed that many people swear so easily, even using the name of the Lord. Very trivial things, unimportant things. They will say, for instance, uh, my, my car was expensive, but Um, It gives such good mileage. And then somebody else says, I don't believe you. He says, well, in, in the name of, and then they use the Lord's name. I'm right. Well, that's a trivial thing to say that has no meaning whatever. But that is what our society is like and has become. God's name is being blasphemed and used for trivial things. But it was already so in Old Testament times. And now Jesus says, our word should be enough. We can disagree, we can agree with other people, and even get a little bit uh, uh, angry, but we should never use the word of God and the name of God. And so the purpose here of Jesus' admonition was to put an end to all this unnecessary and casual oath taking and to show that to take an oath is a very serious matter it is something that must be reserved for exceptionally solemn occasions now Israel had to be made aware of the fact that everything it spoke was heard by God and God had said I am the Lord your God you shall be holy for I am holy But the learned doctors of Israel's law had found a way to get around this divine prohibition. And the Pharisees were masters in this art. So they interpreted the third commandment to read, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform thine oath unto the Lord. And by this they meant as long as you are careful not to break an oath made in the name of the Lord, because if you would do that, then you perform a great sin. It would be perjury. But he says, I know that you want to swear on various occasions, and you can do that. You can safely swear all kinds of other oaths. But just make sure that you don't take the name of the Lord in vain. That's all. For the rest, it is quite acceptable to swear by heaven or by Jerusalem or by the altar of the Lord or what is on the altar or by the temple. All these things are fine as long as you don't mention the word Jehovah they, that is the Jews, they drew a distinction between oaths that were binding and those that were not binding. If you took an oath by the temple or by the gold of the temple or by the altar or the gift on the altar, that was not considered binding. But if you use the name of the Lord directly, then you bound yourself to keep such an oath. In this way, the third commandment was accommodated to the corrupt habits of the people. It encouraged people to take an oath, for example, in business relations, in statements and laws of the government, which they didn't like. They could use all kinds of language to, to, to show that they disagreed with these things as long as they would keep God's name out of it. They would be all right. That's what they thought. And so it is against this corruption and perversion of the Mosaic law that Christ addresses himself here. Notice the contrast, you have heard, he says, you have heard it has been said by them, but I say unto you. Something quite different. What we have here is the legislator himself speaking. Here is the Lord as the lawgiver, who says in effect, I who gave you the old law through Moses and saying this to you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do you get the picture here? Jesus is going against those Pharisees and scribes who had come up with their, their own interpretations of the oath. And that was still relevant in the days of the Reformation. And they've, they've, they, they maintained, the Calvinists especially, they maintained that the Anabaptists were dead wrong. Why? because they did not check this out by reading the rest of the Bible. They were people, and you have them today too, they, they stand for a certain issue and they, they find one or a couple of texts, but they forget that the Bible in other places says something quite different. But the other Baptists went by that one text and forgot to compare Scripture with scripture. And in a way that is very typical of of the cults and the sects, they are people of one text, so to speak. And when other texts give a different interpretation, they ignore that. So when Jesus says, swear not at all, the Anabaptists took that as his absolute command. Well, it is a relative command. Jesus does not forbid the taking of an oath as such. To do this would be to contradict what's said in the law of Moses. Okay, that much, I think, should be clear. We have already noted the legislation which regulated the how and the when of oath-taking. But there is also the Old Testament practice to consider. We have examples, many of them, of people like Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, and Jonathan, all making an oath. But also in the New Testament, we find in Romans 9, verse 1, the Apostle Paul saying, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. That was a form of swearing, an oath. Also Christ himself, when he appeared before Caiaphas the high priest and was asked, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the son of God. Then Jesus answered, thou sayest. And that is an oath. It amounted to taking an oath. Because they considered that blasphemy, and they said so. You have blasphemed God by saying that you are the Son of God. But now let us look in the third place to the permission for the oath. The Bible teaches that there are certain circumstances when we may and even must take an oath. And so when Christ says, swear not at all, he is warning against any rash or unnecessary oath-taking. And there is even more to this than than what I just said. We have to go deeper still. Jesus here is not only opposing rash and unnecessary oath-taking, but he is also stressing the need to keep an oath whenever it has been made. Christ who is himself the truth is concerned to see man honor the truth. But man by nature is an enemy of the truth. And therefore man is not reliable. And that is why promises and even oaths are broken. Man by nature cannot do anything else because he is a subject of Satan's kingdom of lies. But Christ has come to establish another kingdom, namely the kingdom of truth. And the citizens of that kingdom love the truth. And they hate the lie. It is to such people that Jesus says, swear not at all. The Sermon on the Mount, beloved, has been called the Constitution of the Kingdom of Heaven. No, it is not like the the, the Constitution of Canada or, or the US. The law of the Kingdom of Heaven, you see, is spiritual. It is a law that is written in the heart of its subjects. It is the perfect law of liberty that does not have to be enforced. But that is not the case with the application of God's law in the world. The magistrates, the public officials, bear the sword, Romans 13 says. Those who are in the government maintain the law and the order in society, by force, if necessary. And they, that is the government officials, they are not concerned whether citizens obey the law from the heart or only outwardly. They are satisfied already with an outward obedience. And so there is a fundamental difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the world. And that is illustrated further in Matthew 5, Verse 38, there it says, ye have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What does that mean? Well, it means that justice must be done in our society. And to make sure that justice will be done it has to be carried out by force, if necessary, by the powers that be. And according to Paul in Romans 13, Christians must also obey this power. They must submit to the government because the government has been ordained by God. Yet the Lord goes on to say to his church that is to the subjects of his kingdom But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn him the other cheek also. Now, what does that mean? Christ is speaking here about a totally different law. It is the law of love. And that law does not operate in the kingdom of this world. Nor is it supposed to. This law cannot and may not be applied to the powers that be. The government should not love us. Oh, we would like that, I guess. But that is not their function. The law of love applies to the kingdom of heaven and to the relations of the subjects of the kingdom to one another. We are in a society that is totally different from the society out there. The kingdom of the world is different from the kingdom of Christ. And that was something that the Anabaptists did not understand. They confused those two kingdoms. And therefore they thought that it was sinful to hold office or to execute justice by the sword or to wage war. They wanted nothing to do with politics. They rejected the oath even in a court of law. And so when Jesus says swear not at all, he meant that in the kingdom of heaven, it should not be necessary to swear an oath. Christians do not need the oath because their relationship to one another should be such that their yea is indeed always yea and their nay is always to be nay that's how it should be ideally in the church in the kingdom of heaven from the principle of regeneration believers must always speak the truth in love and that is why there is no place for the oath in the church. When a believer makes and <clears throat> a believer makes a vow and is required to make a pledge, he does not need to swear. He's not required to swear a special oath by raising his right hand and saying, I solemnly swear that I speak the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. That's what you say in court, but you don't have to say that in church. And the reason for this is not that the oath as such is sinful, but rather the swearing of an oath presupposes the lie or the possibility of the lie and therefore is based on distrust and suspicion. In the church congregation. In the kingdom of heaven, there's no room for distrust. That means there should not be. Sometimes there is, and that's terrible. But when you bring your children to church for baptism, you are asked to pledge or promise that you will bring them up in the doctrine that is taught here in this Christian church but you are not required to do this in the form of an oath. The reason is that you are, as, you, as parents, you are standing before the face of God and therefore are expected to speak the truth. And the same is true when, when making a confession of faith before the church or when office bearers make a vow before the church when they become elders and deacons. A Christian is not only a subject of the kingdom of heaven, however, he is also a subject of the kingdom of the world. The state or secular government there is a real need for us to understand this. In the state the oath can be and must be taken if required. The Lord Jesus says it. The government is a place where people appear who are all under suspicion. Again, I do not say that the judge knows that about specific people, but in general, In order to get some truth out of people, they are told, you better take an oath. Because if you break that oath, you're guilty of perjury. And there's a punishment for that. The worldly magistrate has the rule over a mixture of people. Good and evil. Righteous and unrighteous. Children of light and children of darkness. And they have to be treated equally. Equally. According to Article 36 of our Belgian Confession, it is because of the depravity of mankind that God has instituted a government. And that is so in order that the wickedness of men might be restrained, held in check. And from this it should be clear that the government cannot function on the assumption that every one of its citizens stands before the face of God, and that they will always speak the truth, it must assume rather the possibility of the lie, and that is why the government must require the oath. You will see now that the question may we not swear in the name of God in a godly manner and that answer must be affirmative yes Christians must be subject to the higher powers also when they require of them an oath when a believer stands before a worldly judge he may not take on an attitude of self righteousness that because he is a Christian the judge must assume that he speaks the truth that was the attitude of the Baptist, and, Baptist, and also other sects during the time of the Reformation. But that was a fundamental mistake. Actually, it is only the Christian who can properly swear an oath religiously and to the glory of God. The natural man may also speak the truth under oath, but before God he still Always sins because his act of swearing an oath does not proceed from faith and to the glory of the Most High God. For the believer in Christ, even his swearing an oath before the court should be an act of faith, it's a witness. It should proceed from the love of God with a view to his glory. But it is to be feared that many swear an oath without realizing what they are doing. They just rattle off a formula without realizing the solemnity of the moment. And you know that that is true. It is even worse than it used to be. It was a time when everybody going to court had to put his hand on the Bible and swear in the name of God. There are many people who don't want to do that anymore and other formulas that are uh, made so that such people who don't believe in God, they can still swear in the sense that they have will be held accountable for what they say and if if they uh, don't, then they will uh, get punishment. They call it perjury and that's why many people, even if they don't believe in God, they, they still cooperate with telling the people that what I'm saying is true because they're afraid of perjury. And that is a terrible thing. Well, let me just sum up what I'm saying here. What about us? We may never have been in court and not so that we had to take an oath. But what about those pledges that you have made in church. As I mentioned before, there is no place for an oath in the church because subjects of the kingdom of heaven can be expected to speak the truth at all times and certainly when they are making a vow unto the Lord. Well, congregation, what, what happened? What happened to those marriage vows that you have made? And parents, what has happened to those pledges that you made when you stood at the baptismal font with your children? Are you really bringing them up in the fear of the Lord? Do you really seek their eternal well-being? Or are you only concerned about your children's position in society? What about those who have made confession of faith? You promised to forsake the world and to seek first the kingdom of heaven. But what has come of that? And office bearers. What about us? Haven't we all committed perjury in this sense? that we have not kept our vows many times. Oh, we have reason enough, congregation, reason enough to, to bow our heads in shame. Do these things trouble you? Maybe you say, well, who then can be saved? We are not perfect. Yes, but you deserve punishment. But, and that is the gospel, also in this Lord's Day, there is forgiveness. Also for the sin of unfaithfulness and oath-breaking. God once said, as I live, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Did you ever understand what that means? When God says, as I live, then he is swearing an oath. He is saying, then I will have to die. That is something that we cannot grasp. God also swears an oath. He does that, but he shouldn't have to, but We should believe him at his word, but because God knows how great our unbelief is, he has stooped so low as to swear that he means what he says, as if God would tell a lie. Do you see how awful sin is? Let me illustrate what we read in Hebrews chapter 6. We have... Some statements there that really are amazing. It talks about the promise that God made to Abraham. It says in verse 13 there, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. He's saying, surely blessing I will bless you, multiplying I will multiply you. For men, he says, verily swear... By the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable or unchangeable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, We might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Do you understand what this means? God swears an oath because there's no one greater that he can swear to. So he swears to himself. That's how God stoops low To meet us sinners who often are engaged in unbelief and questioning God's faithfulness, God's truth, God's promises, that he is sincere. Oh, we often question God. Are his promises reliable? Are they promises made to me? That's all unbelief, and God knows that. But then he says... My word is true. My promises are reliable. Believe them. Receive them. As they are meant for your good. But if you question him. And doubt all the time. You are in real danger. Because as the apostle John says. And I hesitate to say it. But it is true. He. That believes on the son of God. As the witness in himself but he that believes not god has made him what a liar that's what james says a liar because he that is we believe not the record that god gave of his son god has told us over and over again that he gave his son to come into this world to seek and to save that which is lost to 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 save them from perdition and that word of the gospel is preached every lord's day sinner believe in me jesus trust me i gave my son to save you the offer of grace is extended to you without money and without price it is all by my grace And I mean what I say. Congregation. Did you hear this? God wants to save you. And he has sworn an oath. To make sure that we believe that he cannot lie. He does not lie. And therefore, congregation. What we must do when we go home and even now already, realize that God is a wonderful Savior, full of grace and mercy, long-suffering. Is it any wonder that Gasby, one of the English poets, a wonderful poet, he says, how firm A foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said? You who to Jesus for refuge have fled for refuge. Christ is the city of refuge. And the doors to that city are always open, even today. Run with a load of your guilt and your sinful past. Go to that city and find safety in him who calls you.